So we just finished up a series in Genesis. That was the first book of the Bible. So now this morning I want to invite you to the very back of your Bible. And uh, we're going to look at the epistle written by Jude. So Jude verse 1 is where we start this morning. Jude's an incredible book. We wanted to cover some topics in prophecy. And so, you know, I, I really wrestled with this and, and I, I think Jude is gonna help us to, to see what the big issues are in the last days. And it's an incredible book. It's an incredible warning for you and I as the church in these last days before Christ's return. And the big warning that we're gonna see is that we, that we not be deceived. We don't wanna be deceived by apostates, by people who have left the faith. And there's a very real danger of that. Think about it. Both Yale and Harvard, you know, these are huge colleges now. Um, they, they throw a big wake, okay? These are massive institutions. How did they start? They started with the goal of propagating the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they started, but now today, those schools are in the hold of demonic deception. Apostates took over and the whole thing ends up corrupt. And the same thing is happening to denominations and most importantly, and here's where we have to dial in, the same thing happens to local churches. The apostates take over and then you end up in error. Look at verse three. Beloved, when I gave you all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, here it is, this is the theme that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why? Look down in verse 18. Verse 18 gives you a key, key warning summary verse, uh, really verses 18 and 19, giving us warning of very real dangers. Verse 18 says, how that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. It's a very real danger of people who are not, they're not bound to the Bible. They're not following in faith. They're going away that's right in their own eyes and they've got, I mean, they've got apologetics for it. They're apostates. They're not Bible believers. They're Christian deceivers. And so it's critical that we pay attention to the warnings in the book of Jude. I wanna give you some homework because we're gonna be in 2 Peter chapter two a lot as we go through the book of Jude, and so you wanna just, you wanna just start reading 2 Peter chapter two, you wanna be, uh, be acquainting yourself uh, with that passage in scripture. We will go down a few rabbit holes. Um, you know, some weeks we won't really be that focused on Jude, we'll be covering a topic regarding uh, a related topic regarding biblical prophecy. My goal with this, uh, you know, deception is multiplying, it's compounding, right? It's multiplying at a, at a, at a logarithmic, at, a, at an exponential rate. And there's just so many ways for you to get deceived and get tripped up. And so my goal with this series is that we'd have a warning, that we'd be sober, that we'd not be deceived. I'm telling you, there are some incredible lies being generated, there are, some, there are some incredible lies, very sophisticated lies 
being aimed at the church. And so we need to look at these things. We're gonna pick it up in verse one, but first let's pray together and let's trust the Lord to bless our study in this important book. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and ask that, Lord, you would give us insight and understanding. Lord, I pray that everything that we cover in the book of Jude would fall out to the furtherance of our faith, our boldness in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we wanna, we wanna be a people who look toward heaven. We're looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is our savior, he is our life, He's our all in all, and so Lord, equip us through this study. Lord, you know that uh, I have just enough capacity to confuse everyone, and I just ask that you'd take the weakness of my flesh, uh, Lord, my stumbling lips, all of that, and again, set it aside, and let your word speak to your people in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we're inviting you to do what only you can do. You are the living God, you're the almighty God. There is no one like you and you can give us insight into your word, and so we trust you for that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Verse one says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Uh, so the first thing we need to get is the author of the book. The answer is found in the first word of the book. The answer is, Jude. Jude's obviously the author. Um, his, his Greek name would have been Judas. His Hebrew name would have been Judah. And the, 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 he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so you need to know the Jude or the Judah or the Judas that is the brother of James and the half-brother to Jesus. That is the traditional identity of the author of this book. A lot of people will point to verse 17 as support for this position. Jude says, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's speaking of the apostles as being they versus we. You see that? And so they'll use that. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that that has to be the case. He could just be self-deprecating, right? He's not elevating himself as an apostle. But, but the half-brother to Jesus is the traditional identity of the author. So why not call himself? I mean, if that's who he is, why not call yourself the brother of Jesus Christ? I mean, you know that, you know that comes with some clout. Oh yeah, I grew up with him, right? Why not call himself the brother of Jesus? Well, because that's not how he views himself. He's not viewing his relationship with Christ foremost in terms of his identity in the flesh he would view himself first and foremost as a servant to Jesus. Why, because your spiritual connection to Christ is greater than any familial connection. It supersedes your blood relationships. This is true of James, right? He is Jesus' half-brother. Uh, he's called the Lord's brother. In places like Matthew 13, it's like the Apostle James, you know, the, the, the Lord's brother, Galatians 1.19, uh, the other apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Uh, so no doubt, I mean, he can claim that relationship, but that's not foremost who he is in relationship to the Lord Jesus. He is his servant. Matthew 13, verse 55 lists him. Is this 
Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, the, is, not, is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, here it is now, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's Jude right there. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath these men all these things? So you see, being the son of Joseph and Mary, he was in the flesh, legitimately, technically, actually the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Bible is very clear. Mary was still a virgin when Jesus was born. She had known no man, including her husband. But contrary to Roman Catholic belief, she did not stay perpetually a virgin. And Joseph, once that whole virgin birth thing was taken care of and completed and out of the way, well, they got busy. And James and Joseph and Simon and, and Judas, that was the result of their relationship. Okay, so here's Judas. I mean, if it's in the order, he's baby brother. Can you imagine it? Growing up with an older brother, your oldest brother has never sinned. You're growing up with someone who's never done anything wrong. He never disobeyed his parents. He's literally always right. <laughs> always on time. Always in everything, in every way, right? He's everything that you're obviously not. I mean, your oldest brother never got a spanking unless he didn't deserve it. I mean, your older brother is literally perfect. How would you respond to him? in terms of who you are in the flesh. I'll tell you what you'd do, you'd despise him, you'd hate him. You'd have envy and resentment against him. And it's no wonder the Gospel of John tells us, John chapter seven, verse one, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, so here's Judas with his other brothers coming to Jesus, Depart hence, go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Why? Why'd they tell him, go to, go to, well, verse five, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Okay, so you're upset about your capacity to win your family to Christ. Tell it to Jesus. And you know what he's gonna say? Welcome to the fellowship of my suffering. I literally had to die, be buried, and resurrect for them to believe on me. I mean, you're upset that your loved one is still lost? Man, take it to Jesus, okay? You're, you are not alone in this difficulty. At this point, Jesus still hasn't won his family members yet. They saw, his brothers saw his miracles, but they couldn't believe on him. Neither did his brethren believe in him. So they'd see the miracles and they'd think in their heart of hearts, I wonder if these religious rulers are onto something. Does he have some demonic hookup? What's going on with him? Jesus, what's up with you? You're crazy. But then he was captured. Jesus was beaten and crucified. They saw him die on a cross. And I'm sure that Jude was shaking his head, mad at Jesus for putting his mama through all of that grief, through all that pain. But then three days later, big brother came to meet him and Jude finally figured it out. And he, according to Acts 2.36, got clued in, right? Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So what did he do? He confessed the Lord Jesus. 
Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He met Jesus, not as his older brother, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the God of eternal salvation, and he surrendered his life to big brother. Have you met Jesus? Are you born again? Has your sin been removed, right, in terms of how it's, you know, the sin in your life, in that sin, you are reckoned dead before God. The wages of sin is death. Death is eternal. Death in sin is eternal separation from God for eternity. But have you in the cross of Calvary been reckoned, set free from your sin, the sins of your flesh? Have you been delivered from the bondage of sin? If so, if you've met Jesus, right, he's not just the person who gives you a pass over your sin, okay, it's not, it's not just that. You now have Christ as Lord of your life. If so, you are his servant. So that's the first question on the floor this morning. Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? It has to start there in Luke chapter 14. This is why we do this with every disciple Every potential disciple, hey, I want to be discipled. I want you to pair somebody up with me, and I want to, I want to, I want to get on this whole discipleship thing with y'all. We make you go to a class where you take a hard look at Luke chapter 14. You have to count the cost up front. You have to decide, he's my first relationship, right? I mean, I'm all in, nothing is on hold in terms of following Christ, not according to how I feel or think, but according to his word. I'm giving my life, I'm laying my life down to that prospect, to that process. And until you're ready to do that, to follow him in obedience to his word as his servant, you're not ready to be his disciple. Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus said in John chapter 12, in verse 26, if any man serve me, let him follow me. You say you serve, well then follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Where is Jesus? You find him in his word. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you brethren, therefore, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If you, if you belong to Jesus, you're to be a servant of the Lord Jesus, and so you lay down your life in his service. How do we do it? Ephesians 6 says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Matthew 20, 27. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Psalms 2.11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So let's think about that. The first question on the floor this morning, are you his servant? Does your life follow in his service? And do you do it not so that other people will say, oh my, what a great Christian you are. But you do it because it's pleasing to the Father that you follow the Son, that you follow him in his word. 
Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you what, I mean, in terms of the spirit of the age of this time, this day, okay, there's a, there's a big problem. You have people who want to present that they have a form of godliness, but there's no reality in their life. And so you'll attend services. You don't miss a Sunday. And in terms of obedience to the word of God, the only thing you're getting right is you're not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together with the brethren. But you're not actually here to build up the faith of your brothers and sisters according to the command of Ephesians 4. You're not here to get equipped so that you can live out the life of Christ throughout the week. See, a lot of people say that Jesus is Lord except in the area of my finances. Oh, Jesus is Lord except in the area of my physical appetites. Oh, Jesus is Lord except in the area of my will. You can't serve two masters. He's either Lord or you're Lord, right? He's either worth submitting your life, subordinating your life to. So many people, they, they read the word of God and like, yeah, I understand what the Bible says, but, and anytime you hear somebody say that, oh yeah, 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 I know what the Bible says, but, 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 but understand. Okay, what follows that but will stink. I mean, it will stink to high heaven. And they'll have some lame excuse for why the word of God doesn't apply to their life. What are, oh, they're vaunting themselves. They're like the most high. They can do what's right in their own eyes. Is your life following in his service? If so, you are a disciple indeed. You're following God according to his word. Will you do that perfectly? No, welcome to the club. We're all learning, we're all growing. Where is your want to set to? Is Jesus your all in all? Or are you kind of a big deal? What you want, what you, what you desire is kind of a big deal in your life and your personal happiness based on you doing what you want to do, well, that's a big part of your life, your motivations and fulfillment for you. At the end of the day, is he Lord or not? Are you his servant or not? Jude could say, big brother's got my life. Lock, stock, and barrel, I'm all in. Now, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was not an apostle. Uh, History does not record him that way, and again, verse 17 can be used or viewed as proof for that. Obviously, the author is not Judas Iscariot, because we've all read Acts chapter one. He committed suicide. There are other Judases in the Bible. None of the other Judases or Judes are viable. Uh, Eric will take you through all of them when you take the Bible survey course in LFBI. Didn't you do Jude? You cover all this, right? Yeah, there you go, okay. How am I doing so far? Pretty good? <laughs> if you had to grade the, grade the sermon right now, do I get an A? A plus. A plus? Oh, you're just, you're just sucking up. <laughs> Eric will take you through all of it. Now, here's the deal though. The Apostle Jude, okay? Well, he does work as an author as well. He was another brother of another James. So the apostle Jude would be qualified. He's listed in Acts chapter one. You know, Jesus is raptured up out of the apostle's sight. They return to Jerusalem from Mount Olivet. Uh, They come into the upper room where the apostles are all listed. 
and Judas, the brother of James, is listed as one. John 14, verse 22, we see him, Judas the apostle, speak. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. So it's not Judas Iscariot. So he had two Judes on his discipleship team. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest, manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And so Judas, not Iscariot, brother to James, is speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so biblically, he meets the qualifications to be the author of Jude. He's called Thaddeus in Mark chapter three. Uh, did I give you the cross-references, Matthew 10 and Luke six? So you can check out Jude the apostle, and uh, he's an excellent option for authorship. So. That now begs the question, well, Pastor, who do you think was the author of Jude? It doesn't matter. It's one of those two. Uh, You pick. Personally, I would lean toward the traditional view because that's the traditional view. Uh, But either biblically fit the bill for the authorship of the book. Either way, we know that Jude was married. Uh, Paul outs him in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? So the other apostles had wives, so Jude was married, but he was a servant of Jesus Christ. Notice the order. Jesus Christ literally means Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed Messiah. Jesus is his name for us on earth. It means Jehovah saves or the Lord delivers. The name Jesus literally means savior. So Jesus is coming initially, right? It was troubling to Joseph. Uh, He thought to put Mary away over it. In Matthew chapter one and verse 20, while he's pondering this, while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he, why do you name him Jesus? Well, for he shall save his people from their sins. Again, there it is. That begs the question, are you saved? Have you been saved from your sin? That can only happen in the person and in the name of Jesus. Jesus means Savior, Jehovah saves. Christ means literally anointed. He is the anointed one. It is a title for the Messiah. Uh, This is the the, the prophecy that we first saw in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. Christ is his name, right? It's it's the name for his position and place as the promised Messiah. So he's a servant to his savior and his Lord. Do you see that? He's a servant to Jesus Christ. Who does he write to? Look at verse one again. Let's talk about the recipients to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Okay, so it's written to the believers. And what a rich life a believer has. What a rich life we have in Jesus. Look at this, we're sanctified. Sanctified means holy, to make holy. Sanctification, right, or or being sanctified, being set apart to God, that's our standing with Jesus Christ. It means literally that we're set apart to God the Father through Jesus the Son. It's the relationship that we now have with the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. 
So sanctified, get this down in your notes. Sanctified, literally, the, the, the title, the, the class, the category, sanctified, becomes our position when we put our faith in Jesus at the moment of our salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 describes it this way, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, here it is, through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. When you believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? So when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel, through the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do you do? You confess him, right? You confess your sin, you call on him to be Lord and Savior. You believe in your heart, he died for your sins. He was buried in the grave. He rose again to eternal life on the third day. You're not calling on a corpse, you're calling on the King of kings and Lord of lords to have mercy on you, forgive you. Okay, when you do that, Through the believing of faith, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You are now set apart to to God the Father himself. You don't belong to you anymore, you belong to him. That's what makes us, according to Ephesians 1.6, Ephesians 1.6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. God accepts us in the person of Christ. And now we become a part of his family. It's an amazing transformation that takes place in the life of the believer. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Uh, what a contrast. I've got a life in the flesh and all that leads to is sin, death, corruption. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And that ought to, if you don't know that you're saved, that ought to make you tremble because you're still in your sin, you're still living in your unrighteousness, and you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, here it is, here's a, here's a description of the lifestyle of the unrighteous. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. So what do we have? Fornicators, that's the F word of the Bible, fornication. It's sex outside of marriage. Idolaters worship of anything other than God. Adulterers, you don't keep your marriage vows. Effeminate, effeminate, that's a guy acting like a woman. That's a big topic in the news today, isn't it? Man, did that come out, that did not come out of left field, by the way, but it sure feels like it, didn't it? It's like a tsunami now. Effeminate. Then he says, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's a description of homosexuality. Thieves, taking what's not yours, covetousness, wanting something that's not yours. Nor drunkards, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. It is not, permiss- it is not permissible for a believer to be under the influence of any chemical, right? You don't get to be out of your mind. You wanna keep your mind stayed on Jesus. Revilers or extortioners. Man, you don't want to be a reviler. Reviling everything, everyone. Extorting people. Okay, so this kind of lifestyle does not inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. This is written to the church, and such were some of you. That's who you used to be. But what happened? But ye are washed. 
but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Notice, according to verse 11, all three members of the Trinity are involved in setting your life apart to the person, uh, to, to God the Father through the person of Christ. We, uh, man, th- th- this was my description. Uh, I didn't score 100% across the board, but, but, but oh man, my wickedness. I can tell you today, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Just because I got saved, my sin nature didn't go away, it didn't go anywhere. I'm no longer bound to it. I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. I've been set free. I don't have to, I'm not a slave to the sins of the flesh anymore. They're still there. But I don't have to obey them. I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to do what my flesh wants. Why? I don't belong to my flesh anymore. I belong to God. I'm sanctified. And I've been made justified. Here's your hack for justification in the Bible. Justification. Sounds like just as if I'd never sinned. Okay, it doesn't sound just like it, but that's your hack. I have the righteousness of God in the person of Christ. Hebrews 10.10, by the which we are sanctified through the offering, how are you sanctified? Through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. So what's the practical outcome? If I'm sanctified, here it is, 1 Peter 1.15, but as he which hath called you is holy, he set apart, he's not dwelling with sin, He's not dwelling in sin, he's holy. He's set apart, so be ye holy. You be set apart, you be sanctified in all manner of conversation, okay? Conversation in your King James Bible isn't just what you say, it's everything in terms of how you live your life. So, my public time, my private time, my thought life, how I manage my resources, my time, how I manage my life, all of this is set apart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. So we're sanctified, we're also preserved. That means we're secured, okay? That same word that's translated preserved, it's translated as kept or keep and reserve in this same chapter. Did I give you the verses, verse six, 13 and 21? That same word that's translated as um, um, preserved in verse one, preserved in Jesus Christ, it's translated as keep, kept, and reserved in verses 6, 13, and 21. Uh, In John chapter 17, we see the same word show up. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. I preserved them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, I've preserved them. None of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there was another Judas, the betrayer, who was not kept, but he stands in contrast to every other believer in Jesus Christ. At salvation, you are made the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And what God did in you at salvation, he preserves Philippians chapter one verse six says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So notice that we're preserved in him, right? We're preserved in Jesus Christ. Being in Christ, that is one of the greatest truths given to us in the word of God. I mean, you wanna talk about 
like the ultimate nugget in the Bible. When you get a hold of that thing, man, that changes everything. To know that you're in, literally in the person of Christ. What a great gift. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And again, therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. To have my life now in Christ, and that's the great, I mean, what an incredible thing. When I got saved, so many things took place uh, uh, years ago. You know what, somebody, somebody on the staff remind me and uh, we'll, we'll produce the list of 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation, and we'll attach that as an addendum to the next uh, Jude study. Does that sound good? You'll put it in the chat? Thank you. Um, there's more than 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation, but the big ones, so anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get that to you. Um, what happened was I got separated from my body the sins of the flesh. I got separated from myself at the moment of salvation. The Spirit of God sealed my heart and my life, sealed my soul until the day Jesus comes back for me. My spirit is joined to the Lord, to the Lord's Spirit. Christ dwells in my heart by faith. Christ literally is in me, and then here it is, I am in him. He makes us one. This is why, you know, this principle of being in Christ, this is why we, I mean, we're the temple of his spirit. This is why it's critical that we don't, I mean, in Colossians, you know, the, the, the natural response is don't join your members to a harlot, right? You don't take the members of Christ and marry them to the world. In Christ, lock, stock, and barrel. What an incredible truth and privilege. A great picture for that in the Old Testament. We saw it in the book of Genesis. The ark, right? Noah's ark. Those that were in it were not condemned. They were preserved from, they were preserved through judgment. So what the ark was to Noah, Jesus himself is to us. To be in him is to be preserved. And then lastly, called. That means selected. That's actually the first thing that happens. God selects us, and this is a big topic. And you need to know, biblically, there's a call to salvation given to everyone. That's first. Right, that call goes to all men. Acts 17, 30, at the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Again, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God calls all to salvation and it's critical that you respond at this point. Right, you respond to the call of salvation. God gives you a free will. You have to exercise faith and your will to, sub, to, to surrender your life to Christ, to call on him for mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. Because Calvary, right? In, in light of Calvary, in light of what he paid to buy access to God through faith. Man, I'm, I'm okay, I'm in. So you have to respond, but that call continues after salvation. What God, what God does in you, what God makes of you, right? What God places in your life at the moment of salvation, that has to continue, that has to be exercised. 
Paul talked about this in Philippians 3, 14. He says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1, 9, Jesus, right, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. You're not just called to salvation, you're called also to serve. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's another key concept. God made all these decisions before he even started creation, before the foundation of the world. He chose you because you chose Jesus. Hebrews 3, 1, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest, right, the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We're partakers of this calling. So here's how salvation works. God foreknows. Peter says we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So God, way before everything starts in terms of creation and everything that follows, God who is the Alpha and the Omega saw everything that happens throughout time and he saw you surrender your life in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw you do that. You chose Jesus, so he chose you right back. Read Ephesians chapter one. He predestined you then, because he foreknew you, he predecided you to all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in the person of Christ. So he had to call you in time, right? As your life is following time, as you're unfolding in time and space, right? Your life unfolds. There was a point where God called you to salvation, and you had to respond there in faith. And then if you did, then God saved you. He justified you. He set you apart, right? He sanctified you to himself. And then at his coming, he glorifies the believer with Christ. So he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he saves, he sanctifies, and he glorifies. Verse two, let's look at the blessing. And we'll wrap up here this morning. Uh, It's written to believers And here's the blessing, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Uh, Mercy, man, we need, that comes from God, right? So that's our upward focus. It's a need in the life of the believer. Peace, okay, that's peace in your life. That's the inward focus. And then love, man, that needs to be expressed outwardly toward others. See, we need God's mercy, peace and love because we face grave danger. Uh, We're living in the last of the last days. We face a hard future. Apostates are coming and they must be addressed. This is why we need this series in Jude. We face a world full of false teachers that are growing, not just in number, but in capacity. There is a time of great and growing deception. That's what we're living in. And so again, he gives the reason for the writing in verse three, beloved, when I gave you, right, I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation of the common salvation. We'll talk about this next time. Uh, Jude wanted to write another book like Romans, but he couldn't do it. Why? Because apostates were wrecking the church. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. The data set is set. You don't get to change it, you don't get to reinterpret it. Why? Again, look down in verse 18 and 19. This key warning summary verse 
uh, verses gives us, gives us grave warning of very real dangers. How that they told you that there should be mockers in the last time. Man, aren't mock, I mean, mockers are multiplying in these last days. People mock and they disdain the word of God, the things of God, the person of God, the people of God, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. They're going away that's right in their own eyes. They're, 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 they're worshiping at the altar of self-fulfillment. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. So it's the issue of false teachers that must be addressed and, 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 the, and the deception that's aimed at believers to get them off track, off mission, and off a path to fruitfulness. Uh, in verse four, we'll see the condemn, condemnation of false teachers. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and end up denying God himself. So there's dangerous teachers, there's dangerous doctrine. We are facing, I mean, with the internet, access to insanity has just multiplied exponentially and people fall for it. If you don't know the truth, you're set up, you're, you're ripe to be deceived. Uh, you need to know the truth. It's the truth that, 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 that makes you free, right? You, you need to know what is true before God and his word. But you've got people who in very winsome and in very attractive ways will try to sell lies to believers, to the church. Why? Satan's goal is to make us an ineffective people. And what happens, this is the way it works, you believe the lie, right? Whatever the lie that the world is trying to sell you and it's showing up in the church, um, I'm, I'm gonna be meeting with the deacons, um, past those who have served in past terms but also in this current term. And it's one of the things that we're gonna talk about is you've got people that at this point now are literally holding conferences. They're doing training on how to subvert evangelical churches. How to get them to walk away from conviction where God's truth is concerned and to go along and get along with the world. So you buy the lie and now all of a sudden you're explaining the Bible away, why? So that you can do what you wanna do. And the church is powerless. You know the lost world they're not looking for a church that's just like them, that thinks just like them, that agrees with them. Now, a lot of the lost world thinks that that's what they want. But what they desperately need, right, if they can see what they really want is people who say, I'm on the Lord's side. What his word says, I'm with it. I don't have an opinion on this. God has already made his word clear. I'm with him. And if that offends you, man, bless your heart, I'm so sorry. But I don't, I'd rather offend you than offend my Father in heaven. And the last thing I wanna do is offend the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the last thing I wanna do. Amen? Amen. What the world needs to see is a people who know their Bible, who love the God of the Bible, and their life is being poured out, a living sacrifice in his service. He's worthy, he's worth. I mean, because he has made us right with him, well then he's worthy that we'd walk in a way that's right before him, amen? So Father, I come to you now in Jesus' name, and Lord, I'm asking for my brothers and sisters that God, 
You'd help us to be able to, even in this introduction, respond to what your word so clearly declares over our life. God, if there are any here today that are not saved, they don't know you as Father. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they'd stop with the excuses. Lord, would you bind the devil and his lies and, and, and his, his reasons that are designed to just get, get, the, get people to put off surrender and submission to you. Lord, would you bind those? Would you open eyes? Would you pour out your spirit and conviction? Lord, would you let today be the day of salvation according to your word in the life of the lost? And for my brothers and sisters, Lord, would you break our hearts over our lip service to you? We give lip service that you're Lord, but we live like we're Lord. God, I pray that today would be a day of repentance And if we mess up tomorrow and follow the flesh versus the word of the Lord, versus your word, God, that we would repent and we would agree with you and we begin once again following in faith. Lord, strengthen us in your word. Strengthen us to follow you in faith, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.